Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of life science, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speaking to leaders in their field and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. In the last episode, I spoke to Guy Cochrane of the EU COVID-19 Data Portal about the difficulties of dealing with the huge amounts of data produced around COVID-19 and the solutions and resources available, alongside some key tips for utilising the data portal. In this episode, I'll explore how to effectively utilise the data available, avoiding the trap of becoming too data-driven, and how to make the most impact both to individuals and to policy using data-driven studies. My guest today has designed a risk calculator available to the public to indicate each user's risk from COVID-19 and developed an infection modelling study for COVID-19 back in March that was presented to the UK government at the meeting of the SAGE committee. Dr Amitava Banerjee, please tell us a bit about yourself and explain your motivation behind the creation of the rrisk.gov calculator. So my, my name's uh, Amitava Banerjee, Ami for short. I am an Associate Professor in Clinical Data Science at University College London and I'm also a consultant cardiologist across two uh, London teaching hospitals, namely University College, London Hospital and Barts NHS Trust. So I spend my time between uh, clinical work and uh, research and teaching largely around big data, using routine clinical information in the form of electronic health records. Uh, and, and since the beginning of the pandemic, I've found myself like uh, a lot of uh, clinicians uh, diverted to um, almost full-time clinical practice, but I also uh, ended up doing some large-scale epidemiology or data science work early on um, in uh, in the middle of March. That happened because there was this announcement from the government that uh, on the 16th of March, that people who were supposedly high risk for severe coronavirus infection or death from COVID, uh, they should be taking more precaution in terms of social isolation. And those would be people with underlying conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, chronic lung disease, kidney disease. And I was getting asked by patients of mine um, why, why they were at more risk, and particularly these are people who you know, were working normally, uh, were, were leading very active lives, and suddenly they were being told to take extra precautions. And of course, on the 22nd of March, a further group of people known as the extremely vulnerable group, uh, so people with long-term immunosuppressive drugs, people who are on active chemotherapy, people who are um, having severe uh, chronic lung disease and on steroids, these are people who had to be shielded or staying at home for three, four months while we were in full lockdown. And they're only, um, if you follow the news, they're only this week being told that they can leave the shielding arrangement. So my idea was that I wanted to inform patients and the public and also um, to help researchers and policymakers and clinicians like myself to put some objective information uh, behind decisions, whether at the individual or the population level. 
And what data sets did you use to create this calculator? I used, with, with, with a team of colleagues at the Institute of Health Informatics at UCL, I used a large primary care, that's GP data, uh, the database is called CPRD, Clinical Practice Research Data Link, and all another project we had access to data for 3.8 million individuals and that primary care data was linked with data from hospitals and also uh, linked with data from the Office of National Statistics for mortality. And so what was that resulting calculator like and, and what was the reception to it? What I wanted to do was first of all tell people on the basis of their age, their sex and their underlying conditions what their baseline or underlying risk of death at one year was and that actually hasn't been done across a wide range of conditions before so that was the first thing we wanted to do so we always thought with this data that we would want to make it available to the public and help individuals who are already making difficult decisions such as should I go to work should I visit my mum uh, in a different city, uh, sh- should I um, be going on public transport, and so on. Uh, and and um, so we produced a simple uh, calculator using the data I've just mentioned, using our shiny uh, in, in the first instance. And we, we in a very tight timeline, um, managed to do some patient and public engagement with the patient and public panel of Health Data Research UK, uh, engaging with about 40 um, people from, from that group to, to see what kind of information they want and how we might present it. And uh, if you fast forward, uh, our preprint went to full publication in The Lancet on May 12th, and at the same time, we released the, the calculator and just by serendipity, the country had um, uh, had um, changed in its situation in that the Prime Minister on the 11th of May uh, had announced that we would be easing lockdown at that time. Um, so these same decisions were being made in a slightly different context, but the information was still needed. That calculator is freely available at a free website and... Uh, We had 350,000 visitors in the first 24 hours, which rather um, bowled us over. And um, we had a couple of issues with the traffic to start with. And within a week, it was over half a million and over a million users over the next three weeks. So so what that showed was there's an appetite for this information. And um, it wasn't just people around the UK, people in, in different countries as far away as South African India were interested uh, in, 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 in this simple information uh, which could help people's decisions. So how did you use this data to try and change some of the conversations that were happening around COVID and to inform the UK government's policy um, towards lockdowns and COVID-19 back in March? Already we knew, um, and we knew since the very first reports from Wuhan, that 95% of the deaths that happened with COVID happen in people who are either older 
or uh, have underlying conditions. And so we, we wanted to somehow um, predict uh, that extra risk, the so-called excess risk. If you remember in, in this country and others, people were saying that um, people who were already expected to die were dying, that this wasn't um, beyond our expectation, what, was, what we were seeing with coronavirus. And we wanted to show that there was indeed an excess and we also wanted to um, show show that uh, we should be doing something different in terms of policy, both as a citizen and uh, as a doctor. I was concerned that other countries were, were entering lockdown more quickly. If you remember, 17th of March, at that time we had 81 deaths related to coronavirus and 1,950 uh, cases. Uh, of, of coronavirus uh, in, in um, July, where we are now, we're obviously at um, well over um, 43,000 confirmed deaths from COVID. And in terms of excess deaths, it's thought to be in the region of 60 to 65,000. So um, that was a time where we wanted to show, uh, can we, um, can, can we influence policy to, to enter into lockdown sooner? So we did some analyses um, using that data, which I can go into more depth. But in short, we showed firstly that the high-risk group of people is a, a large proportion, well over a fifth of the population has underlying conditions or is over the age of 70. Uh, so, so that's a that's a significant amount of excess risk in the population. And if you look at just the baseline mortality, it varies based on age, gender, and underlying conditions. Uh, and although we we were told about these high-risk conditions, we didn't uh, take into account what's called multi-morbidity, so having more than one underlying condition, having more than one increases your risk. So we, we, we could tell people that their baseline risk varied, and so different people should be um, taking um, a different amount of precaution. And finally, we showed that assuming different infection rates and different relative impact of the pandemic, by, by relative impact I mean how much more uh, harmful is coronavirus in terms of the outcome death than uh, the baseline. And so, for example, the, what's called the winter excess deaths every year is in the order of 20% excess mortality. And since then, it's been shown that the excess um, or the, the relative impact of coronavirus is more like two to three. So using those assumptions, we predicted at that time that there would be between 35 and 70,000 excess deaths in England at a 10% infection rate. Um, sadly, uh, our, our predictions were in the right ballpark. So did that model then get taken on board by the government? That uh, data was seen by, uh, by um, SAGE and by um, the Chief Mental Officer's Office and we, we know that it, um, was, was part of the argument to enter into lockdown the following day because we released this to preprint on 22nd of March and the 
the UK entered lockdown on the 23rd of March. So going back to those, um, the data sets that you use, so the, the primary care data, um, the Office of National Statistics data, the 3.8 million people's information, what were some of the, the methods or techniques that you used to analyse and interpret that data? And um, did you encounter any challenges in sort of bringing that data together and making it function alongside each other? Or was it all quite compatible? So I'm fortunate in that I, I work in an institute of health informatics at UCL where we are quite experienced and have access to, to this data for, for other projects and now for, for this um, COVID-related work. We're part of a broader network of um, institutions um, within Health Data Research UK. So there's both people and resource which is experienced at looking at the states. Now, um, there are three or four primary care data sets like this in the UK. And, and the UK, because of its universal healthcare setup, is fairly unique in having this kind of real data linked across uh, different settings. So we, we were able to access that, and just by luck, I, I had access to data for a, for a different project. So, so access was not a, a problem, although you can argue that you know 3.8 million is 5% of the UK's population. In, in a public health emergency, you might argue we need to have um, better access to data more more quickly. There's not time to be going through the usual lengthy approvals, and it's it's not business as usual. So, so could argue that in order to get really representative analysis, you want more data and want it more quickly. Uh, but that's a, a, a separate discussion, perhaps. Uh, in terms of analyses, I would say what we did was mainly in the realm of um, quite simple epidemiologic analyses. Firstly, we uh, used the, the the data to find people with these underlying high-risk conditions. So we used um, known electronic health record phenotypes for conditions from diabetes and different cancers to chronic lung disease and kidney disease. And we worked um, out the um, Kaplan-Meier estimates for uh, one-year mortality in the first instance. And then we uh, made assumptions, as I said earlier, to look at the infection rate. So we took um, the lowest um, level of infection rate related to a policy of full lockdown or suppression, which we, we said was one in 100,000. Uh, we um, went 1%, one, one in 100, one in 10. And then we also made an estimate of 80% in our model as well, um, 80% infection rate, to cover the idea that was still being talked about at that time of herd immunity. Uh, and the the estimates that I mentioned were a 10% infection rate, which people thought at that time was um, rather, um, you know, exorbitant. That, that that was unlikely, but of course, seroprevalent studies have proven that it's at least 10% at, at peak um, in places like London. So that was probably um, accurate. So, so uh, yeah, the, the model was, was fairly simple. There was no advanced data analytics in terms of um, 
machine learning or, or such like, which we do in, in other projects. And I'm, I'm quite familiar with this was designed to be um, a much uh, quicker and more pragmatic piece of work. And um, that 80% model, what were the um, what were the figures at that if, if infection had gone to 80% when the idea was to pursue um, herd immunity? So at, at worst and uh, at worst infection rates and at the highest relative impact, we, we would be in the hundreds of thousands of deaths. And so, you know, if, if you say that every year we have between 500 to 600,000 deaths, that's what we expect to see in England. Uh, and anything above that is what people have called excess deaths. So, so you would expect to see you know, hundreds of thousands of excess deaths if the infection rate were allowed to rise. When conducting those um, those modelling studies and and using the large huge amounts of data that you're um, you're having to process and, and analyse, do you have any um, advice or tips for best practice when conducting these kind of studies to get to get the most out of your data um, and to, and to produce those sort of clear actionable results? Yeah, I, I think uh, what this whole um, experience and project has shown me and shown others as well is that we've we've somehow got obsessed with the idea of big data and advanced data analytics and machine learning and we've become very data-driven data-centric technology focused but actually where we should be and want to be particularly right now is centered on patients and people and this all came from uh, a, a question from a patient of mine that that got me thinking originally and I think you know going forward we must strive to answer the questions that need answering rather than using the data to show off our latest toys there's a difference Uh, and and that way we can be most relevant to both patient care but also helping policy makers I I would urge us as a research community to think where we can where we can use our skills and resources best to inform those decisions. And I think in terms of data, it's this, this was pure luck that I had access to data early in reality, getting access to this data, even in the current scenario, can take upwards of a month. You know, knowing the, the processes, being familiar with what's available, um, having a, a wide research network so that you can be um, agile and, and so, so I have been fortunate and been able to work with people from other institutions before and after this work which which helped and finally it's good to have people from lots of different um, disciplines who are informing or um, helping with the analyses there's things that I can do and there's things that I can't do and you know there's, there's people in the team who can fill in my gap so we had when we did this initial piece of work uh, whether it was epidemiologists data scientists virologists uh, general physicians people from, from various uh, walks of, of life involved so that we could cover the bases so to speak um and if you could ask for anything to allow um, researchers or 
um, clinicians say, um, to make m the most out of the amount of data that is available um, on COVID-19. Uh, what would it be? So I've got three things on my shopping list. First of all, I think that we must use the, the plus points of what we have. You know, if you're in other countries such as the United States, you don't have national representative data that's linked across uh, and possibility of using it. So the fact that it's difficult or so difficult to get hold of and still, uh, e even with people working heroically around the clock, push forward the ethical approvals, uh, it's, it's still challenging. And, and so we need to recognise that this is different to the usual scenario. This is a public health emergency. We can't go into it blindfolded. And so you know, research and data access should be prioritised. Secondly, I would ask that we should think of a pandemic of this scale as beyond infectious diseases. So we've been doing a lot of follow-on work around both the direct effects due to coronavirus infection, but also indirect effects on other areas of healthcare because of the strain on the health system, because of changes in people's behaviours and so on. And in a, in a uh, disease and, pa and a pandemic of this scale, we need to think beyond just our values and infectious disease. And we should be thinking about access to data for other uh, diseases as well, so that we can, for example, uh, make sure that people with cancer are treated promptly. Thirdly, I would say that we, we need to make sure in a kind of mixed economy where different people are doing testing and there's private providers coming in and out to do testing, we need to make sure that that data is accessible because both on the, the clinical and the public health practice side and on the research side, we're working blindfolded if we can only see parts of the, the data. I just wanted to ask, so back in March, the um, modelling study that you conducted obviously massively impacted policy um, and was, as you say, part of that decision um to go into lockdown um and was that was a case of policy following the science um do you believe that uh the uk government is still largely directing its policy around science um and with the sort of release and repeal of um, a lot of the lockdown measures at the moment um do you think it's still closely following the science and, and and studies provided by people such as yourself or do you think it's going slightly more off piste at the moment record and what's happening right now is that unfortunately we haven't been closely following the science. I say that because we weren't the first country to be affected by a long way and we already knew at the beginning of March, you know, if not earlier, that uh, early lockdown testing and tracing were the, the bedrock of a, of a public health response to coronavirus and, and that could keep the deaths down, but we didn't act on that. So, so that's regrettable. I would say that we also have throughout seemingly done things that are exceptional rather than following other countries and other lessons. And following the science can be you know, following modelling studies, which is what ours was, but it can also be following the real data from abroad or around the country. And we... we um, haven't always 
done that and I, I hope that is changing. And finally, uh, I say that you know, following the science means that the science changes and, and keeps moving, but we, we need to have real-time data in order to um, fuel that. And still, we we haven't got a, a you know universal, anywhere near universal testing and tracing framework as we ease lockdown. So I'm afraid that we're not um, following the, the science. So um, we're, we're in a situation where we have a lot of science that's being done in the UK because, unfortunately, we've had a lot of cases and a lot of deaths. It would, I would rather, as a researcher, have had less data available because this was a, um, a rarer occurrence for people to die of coronavirus. Um, but that has not been the case. And you know, now that we are where we are, we need to make sure that we are you know, far better prepared for second waves and, and you know the coming months okay fantastic well um it's been really uh, really good to speak to you um i think it's a really interesting point you make there about using data and big data and analytics and all this kind of stuff um as a tool to enable your research as opposed to being directed by it um which i guess is a trap that's quite easy to fall into is um it's just seeing the numbers and just using that to inform uh, the kind of research that you undertake or the decisions that you make and, and maintaining that sort of patient perspective or um, people-focused approaches towards things is obviously something that we shouldn't have to strive to have to do, but in the way that society is moving towards ever more data-driven um, decisions and uh, and control of um, various aspects of our lives, um, I suppose it's something that we always need to keep conscious of. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. Dr. Banerjee, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks very much for having me. And thank you, our listeners, for listening at home. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, and if you would like to check out more of our podcasts, you can go to the podcast section of our website at www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye. Goodbye.